Good morning, everyone. How is everyone? Everybody had a good, good Thanksgiving? Yeah? Lots of turkey? Are you still full? I am. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please raise your hand. We'll get you one. And if you don't have one at home, we would uh, love for you to keep the one we hand you as a gift so you can read that daily. St. Augustine said the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. So if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and we'll get one to you and then open it to Luke 9.28. We'll be in Luke all morning. As you're doing that, you may have noticed that I have lit our first Advent candle. The candle symbolizes hope. It can be called the prophecy candle in remembrance of the prophets, especially Isaiah, who foretold of the birth of Christ. It represents God's forgiveness of our sins and a sense of expectation felt in anticipation of the coming Lord. Today, we anticipate his second coming, right? And so the color purple is associated with prayer, contemplation, repentance, and hope, which is what our theme is today. The candles sit within a wreath, which like a wedding ring, is an unending circle representing Christ's unending love for us and reminding us to keep Jesus at the center of all of our Christmas celebrations and traditions. So this week, the challenge to each one of us, and it's in your uh, handout, is to contemplate the imminent return of our Lord with hopeful anticipation and to devote the week to prayer and repentance. Speaking of our uh, handouts, I forgot to edit the title. So I did mess up. The title is from last time. Sorry. Um, but you get it. Today, uh, Luke 9, 28 to 36, the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. And that we're going to find in the transfiguration of our Lord. So Luke chapter 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain and prayed, or to pray rather. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was, again, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. When they become fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him, who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Oh, our gracious God, as we enter this time of Advent, of anticipation and preparation, we come to this place to open your word and to honor you. We surrender our desires and, I, and our appetites to you, for we know that your will for us is far better than our will for ourselves. As we look to Jesus, who became flesh, dwelt among us, suffered and died for us, and has promised to return in glory. 
We thank you that we are given to share in the son's inheritance and participate in his kingdom forever. So therefore we surrender all to you that we might deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow you as you speak through your word. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to hear your voice and to be filled with your Holy Spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. How many of you love watching Christmas movies before Christmas? Anybody love Christmas? Any, yeah. any Grinches out there that don't? No. Uh, love Christmas movies, right? Christmas movies are great. Uh, who's got a favorite? Anybody have a favorite here? Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. Ron? Christmas Carol. The one with George C. Scott? That's the, dude, he nailed that part, didn't he? That was awesome. What else? Any other ones? Elf? I'm pretty sure Lance loves Elf. In fact, if you want to get him like a poster and all that. Lance cannot stand Will Ferrell. Um, any, any other movies? Any other ones out there? It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah. There's great, and, and, and it's, a, it's a Wonderful Life. Um, it has a great message. There are a lot of great movies around Christmas time that point to the importance of joy and family and generosity. Even the secularists have borrowed from our biblical worldview to promote good values during Christmas. At least some of them, right? One of my favorite Christmas movies is uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Um, Love that movie. Um, it, the premise is that there's this old guy who believes himself to be Santa Claus, and everyone thinks that he's either crazy or just a nice old man with a minor delusion. Throughout a court trial and other events, this, there's this little girl that uh, refuses to believe in Santa because her, mo her mom had always taught her not to believe in anything make-believe and to only be brutally honest with this little girl. And, but, but she slowly begins to believe that this man may really be Santa Claus. Well, because of a technicality, the court rules that he is the one and only Santa Claus. At the end of the story, this little girl's hopes are dashed when the one thing that she had asked for for Christmas was not to be found under the tree, not even a note. Well, this old man, Chris, Chris Kringle, uh, calls her and she refused to speak to him, but he told Uncle Fred, who I, her mom was seeing, and I guess by the end of the movie they're engaged or so, I don't know, but uh, tells, he asks them to join him at the old folks' home for a party and to take a particular route to get there. We'll check it out. Where are you going? To see if there's 
her that. Outside said it's for sale. We can't let her down. I never really doubted you. It was just my silly common sense. It even makes sense to believe in me now. I must be a pretty good lawyer. I'd take a little old man and legally prove to the world that he's Santa Claus. Now you know that. by the people that moved out. Maybe. Maybe I didn't do such a wonderful thing after all. That was a great movie. <laughs> but, you know, Miracle on 34th Street is a fictional story. Um, it is, but, but we've been in a, in a section of Luke's gospel that's dealing with actual, real, historical accounts of the unfolding identity of Jesus. And particularly during his incarnation on earth. So today, we're going to see that theme crescendo into a glorious event in which his divine glory breaks through his physical body and God the Father speaks from heaven, affirming once and for all the true identity of Jesus. God the Son the Christ of God, Messiah, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. So on this first Sunday of Advent for 20, uh, 2022, we're going to embrace our heritage that was handed down from the Apostle Paul right here in Acts 17, verse 2. It says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned, with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so my prayer as we uh, go through this passage this morning is that we are each prepared and equipped to continue in that great heritage in our day-to-day -day interactions with people that we might proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Reasoning from the scriptures is part of the E in our life acronym, enlarging God's kingdom. In fact, this week, it was kind of cool. Denise and I had a wonderful opportunity to reason from the scriptures uh, with some very sweet young LDS girls concerning that very question that Herod asked so long ago that we saw a few weeks ago in Luke 9, verse 9, where Herod says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Luke 9, 28. And you'll keep your finger in Luke 9 all morning. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Well, this, this morning's passage has hints of a few prophetic events, primarily the resurrection and ascension of Christ. There's also an eschatological feel to the passage, particularly since he is going to return the same way that he left. But also because the resurrection um, and ascension is what initiated the end times, 
And that's because the return of Jesus has been imminent from the time he left. And that's why we say that we're closer to the end than we ever have been. Jesus is coming back, and there are indicators to us, if we understand our end times theology correctly, that it will be quite soon. That said, we need to be careful, because this passage, like other eschatological texts, or it rather is like other eschatological texts, in that it is not meant to be read as a riddle to be solved. Our passage today is not meant to be an eschatological prophecy for us to decode. We have hints of resurrection and ascension, even in his end days, end of days coming. But the purpose of this passage is to bring us hope, not to confuse us. And it fits perfectly with the theme of the first week of Advent, which is again, hope. Hope. By the way, that word eschatology, it just means the study of the final events in history or of the world or of humankind, or the study of um, the end of days. So Luke says that this is eight days after the previous event where Peter had confessed that Jesus is Messiah, and then Jesus responds by revealing the truth that Peter had discovered will be costly both to him and his disciples. And he says that he'll suffer... And die, and then his disciples must follow that suit by denying themselves, picking up their crosses, and following him. Here, that message turns into a message of hope. Eight days was just a way uh, that the Gentiles in that culture would say about a week. So times about a week later, uh, Mark says after six days, and so it's still it's all just about a week. Mark nine two. And three, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white and as no one on earth could bleach them. Now he takes Peter, James and John with them. Those three are also paired together in several places later in Luke, several spots in Acts and they're also mentioned together in Galatians. Uh, the transfiguration that follows was for their benefit primarily. I don't think there's any doubt that Jesus already knew his fate since he had just expressed it that week before. David Garland said its purpose was to reveal to them and to the reader that suffering and death are not incompatible with heavenly glory. Here they're on this little mountain and Jesus is praying. And it wouldn't be the last time that they would fall asleep while Jesus was praying. We don't know what Jesus is praying about, but I think that some of the commentators were onto something when they, when they pointed to the intensity uh, of his prayer at Gethsemane. And, and they suggest that he was praying about the suffering that he was about to experience, about that cup the Father had placed before him. And that the Father, in those following verses, sends Moses and Elijah to bring him comfort and encourage him concerning his coming death. It's quite possible. Uh, Prayer is where it all starts. God reveals himself to us through the scriptures, but prayer is central to that revelation. You might call it the catalyst. When, when we read the Bible prayerfully, we are opened up to be illuminated by God's word in a very special way. Let's move on to verse 29. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was 
altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, now, now Luke simply tells us that his appearance changes, but in the other Gospels, it's more specific. Matthew uses the word we translate transfigured, um, and that word is metamorpho or metamorphothe, uh, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. It simply means a change of form or appearance. Uh, that, this part has both hints of the resurrection and the second coming. Literally, his clothes become a white that flashes like lightning. We see that, as we have seen before, that God loves to do magnificent things on mountains. We see that throughout the, the scriptures. And so, it's interesting, I find, that we are at IBC, which is on a mountain. Just a little thought. Maybe God wants to do something radical with us here too, right? Moses' face shone when he came down the mountain uh, from away from God's presence. At some point, you have to go down the mountain, right? That was a reflection of God's glory that occurred when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses. But what happens to Jesus here is different because he's not merely reflecting light. He's the source of it. R.C. Sproul said it was a divine glory coming from the second person of the Trinity who shares in the fullness of divine glory. In fact, that's a key component to his incarnation. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, which we read about in John 1, 9 to 14. I like to call this John's nativity. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is reminiscent, particularly in our passage for today, of Paul's encounter with the risen Lord when a great light shows up. Jesus, in all of his glory, makes a cameo appearance, knocks him over, revealing that he's Messiah who Paul's been persecuting. And this event in Luke uh, is so profound that Peter recalls it in his contribution to the New Testament. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is an important text, what we see is that Christ is temporarily transformed into a heavenly being while he's still incarnate here on earth. In the incarnation, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, had voluntarily 
taken on the limitations of human flesh. But here in this place, he's seen in glory. David Garland said, it anticipates the future and permanent glory in heaven as promised to the righteous after their death. So it's a foreshadowing of our hope. This is a passage of hopefulness that even though we're called to follow Christ, even to integrate suffering if needed, our end is that he glorifies us. That's an astounding promise because in our sin, all we deserve is judgment and suffering. But because he suffered, we have his grace and future hope of glory because of the cross. Wow. And that's demonstrated here where Christ supernaturally is transfigured as an answer to the question that we find littered throughout Luke. Who is this? It's the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. So that as Luke tells Theophilus, you may be certain concerning the things that you have heard. It's more about identity than it is about prophecy. The prophetic points to the person. This is about Jesus. Even after Jesus had died and been buried, some of his female disciples had prepared spices and an ointment to preserve his body. And on the day after Sabbath, on the third day, they returned to the tomb at which Jesus had been laid. Go to Luke 24 if you would. We'll start in verse 1. We're going to jump around there for a minute. Keep your finger in Luke 9. Luke 24, verse 1 says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And then they saw something much like Peter, James, and John see here in our text in Luke. So let's read on. Verse four, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. Now, we're not given the identities of these two men in dazzling white. Um, math, uh, you know, uh, in one of the gospels, it says that it's, it's, it's the, um, there was just one, it was the angel of the Lord. The other gospel says there are two, but called them angels. Um, but, but really we're not sure the, they're, they're speaking from their observations here. It wouldn't be a stretch to consider that the connection might point to perhaps Moses and Elijah being there in some way, ministering to the Lord as he suffers and then they get to see his glory manifest in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then, of course, the, the women show up and they're there, but Jesus not. Either way, uh, Moses and Elijah point to Jesus. Moses and Elijah are very important to the gospel message because they represent the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. The law and the prophets testify of Messiah. They point to Jesus. Further down in Luke 24, Jesus appears to them on the road to Emmaus. Verse 25, Luke 24, 25. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just like at that time, we see in the transfiguration a confirmation that Jesus is the one that Moses and Elijah have been uh, uh, anticipating, that they were preparing for. We also see in this text a reaffirmation of his impending suffering and death. Luke says that he's about to accomplish his departure at Jerusalem. We all know what that means. In fact, the word departure is exodon or exodus, which is a going out. It can mean a departure from this life uh, or uh, the final state or the close of uh, one's career. It's an interesting choice of words considering the presence of Moses, I think. In the Exodus, Moses led the Hebrew, Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, right? It was a going out. And in the Exodus of Jesus, his elect are led out of slavery to sin and into eternal uh, freedom through adoption. Kind of an interesting parallel there. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the glory of, or the, rather you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of do- adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this is, this is the hopeful part of what we read in the previous section a couple of weeks ago. Uh, right, Luke 9.18 Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly uh, charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's jump ahead to verse 32, Luke 9, 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Now the disciples are at first too groggy to figure out whether they're dreaming or not. Like, when you're half asleep, you just don't think clearly. Like, you're, you know, you're like half asleep. You're like, oh, I need to get out of the space shuttle now. Like, right? You ever get like weird, right? You don't know where you're at? Uh, it's like that morning of September 11th, 2001. Do you remember that? Anybody remember being shocked awake? Like, I remember, like, I hear the news radio saying something about a plane crash or something and burning. And I was somehow thinking about, of South America. I have no idea why. Um, and then I kind of drifted back off to sleep. And then the next thing I remember hearing is that a second airplane had hit the Trade Center building in New York City. And I'll never forget these words. America is under attack. Because at that point, I about hit the ceiling. Anybody else have that same experience? You're like, wait, what? Right? It was shocking. Well, I think that that may have been what's taking place here. Peter, James, and John are rubbing their eyes, and then suddenly they stand up in shock, right? Verse 34 says they were afraid. Mark uses the word terrified. Here's Jesus who is emitting light from his clothing, and his face is transformed, and Moses and Elijah from centuries past just sitting back kicking it with them, right? And it's possible that Elijah's there as an encouragement to Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem, which he calls in chapter 13, the city that kills the prophets, because Jesus knew what he was up against, right? 
Jesus knew where he was, where we, where he was headed and why. Verse 33, Luke 9, 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid and they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter goes from groggy to reactionary, right? When I heard that the trade centers were hit and America was under attack, I lived in this big house with a few guys and uh, had roommates. I wasn't married back then. And I hear this, I throw my door open and I run over and I go banging on my roommate's door. Wake up, wake up, we're under attack, right? Um, turn on the radio, you know, and, and he had the same reaction. He's like, Dude, I'm sleeping, shut up, <laughs> right? Like, I, I go in, I take the, the fastest shower I think I've ever taken. I come out of the bathroom, which is right across from his door, and I'm standing, and he's standing at his door with his eyes about this big, right? And he goes, get your clothes on. We're going to the recruiters right now. It, my roommate's first reaction, he was being reactionary, was to join the military and fight. It, it, it was reactionary, like Peter's, Peter being reactionary, right? Um, he, neither one of us, we were in our mid and late 20s at the time, Neither one of us actually joined the military. I don't know, maybe we should have, we didn't. But Peter was reacting. His first reaction was to build a tabernacle for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But Peter didn't understand the implication of what he was saying. Only God will tabernacle with us. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, you can't put Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. The law and the prophets are subject to the lawgiver, our sovereign God. The old covenant is superseded by the new covenant. They work together, but the grace given by Jesus has the final word. And this was a, a mountaintop experience for Peter. It's why he reacted. It was a mountaintop experience. He was experiencing a radical event and, and didn't want to leave that experience for the rigors of ministry in Jerusalem. We know that Peter was a pretty emotional guy, right? It's a reminder, though, not to get stuck in our emotional experiences, right? I had a friend of mine, and he had a dream where he was out in this beautiful golden field, and off in the distance was this, there was this little white church that he saw, and from that church, even being far off, he could hear the most beautiful worship he had ever heard in his life. He was just blown away. And as he drew closer, he heard the tune. He couldn't quite make out the words, but he knew the song from memory. Some of you might know this. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. You know that song? Has anybody heard that one, right? Uh, 
And as he drew nearer, he felt this deep emotion with which the congregants were singing and tears began to flow down his face. He'd never heard such powerful and sincere worship as he walked faster and faster toward this church to join in. But as he drew near, he noticed that the church was not singing the words that he knew. His tears stopped flowing. Anger filled his heart as he drew near to hear the congregation singing. The peanuts are salted, the peanuts are salted for me, and I will eat them. And my friend took off running into the church yelling, Stop! Stop singing that! That's heresy! That's idolatry! You're singing to peanuts! See, emotion is good. We were, we were created with emotion. That's how God created us. But we were also created with the ability to reason. And that is every bit as important in our worship, if, if, if not more. Some of us are very emotionally driven people. That's a very good thing. But we must remember that just because we don't feel something doesn't mean we aren't worshiping. And having an emotional experience doesn't necessarily mean that we're worshiping in spirit and truth. And, and, and really, our emotions can deceive us, can't they? Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Peter, in his emotions, reacts hastily, not understanding what he was saying. Peter was wrong on two counts. The first is that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophet, were not to be held with the same esteem as Christ and the grace that he gives. And secondly, that this supernatural and highly emotional experience was not to be prolonged, but to be remembered as a catalyst for obedience to Jesus. As Peter's speaking, a cloud rolls in and envelops them. You ever, have you ever flown a small plane into a really dense cloud where you can't even see the wing, right? Or like, you know, you've, you've been in fog so thick that you do this with your hand and it starts to disappear, like I, you might get a picture of what this like. This fog, I think, was probably so thick that you probably could barely see your hand in front of your face. That's an eerie feeling if you've ever been in that kind of fog. Peter and James and John become terrified. But wait, there's more. From this eerie cloud, a voice comes out. This is one of only three times that God speaks audibly from the clouds or from the sky. The baptism of Jesus, of course, and then this account of the transfiguration. And then in John 12, as he draws closer to the crucifixion, this is what he says. John 12, 27 to 30. Jesus praying, now my soul, my, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Here God answers Herod and affirms Peter's confession. This is my son, my chosen one, my elect one. Notice that the most clear revelation is this incredible event is given in word, right? God reveals himself with words. In the beginning was the logos, the word, Jesus. And the word was with God, 
And the word was God. The clearest revelation was not the supernatural visual effects they were seeing, but the word of God. The identity of Jesus is revealed here, and and it's connected with suffering through words. And finally, this revelation of who Jesus is comes in a command, or with a command, rather. Listen to him. This is Jesus, the everlasting Son of the Most High God. The second person of the Trinity, Messiah, Savior, God. Listen to him, the Father says. David Garland said the command to listen to Jesus means that they should listen to the revelation of God that comes through Jesus rather than fickle speculations of public opinion or their yearnings to make Jesus conform to their own expectations of what Messiah should be and do. Acts 3.22 Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter's confession is that Jesus is Messiah is confirmed here by the Father from heaven. And then he goes further by telling Peter, James, and John, as well as those who read the gospel accounts of this event, even to this day, gives them a clear command, listen to him. This is for today. I think there's often a a lot of pressure on pastors um, much of the time uh, or to spend, rather, much, much of their time studying the news. CNN, Fox News. Uh, and, then, and then to try to fit those things into what the Bible says about the end times, like a, like a puzzle piece. I know that there are a lot of pastors out there that, that, that do that. And, and, and it isn't necessarily long to try, wrong to try to make connections. But while there are some things that do seem to go together, most of it is... if. It's pure speculation if we're being honest. It isn't to say we shouldn't pay attention to what's going on in the world around us, but if we want to recognize Jesus when he comes, we need to listen to him. And our triune God has revealed himself with words right here in the scriptures in the very Bible that we hold in our hands. That's why we emphasize it so much. Do you want to be ready for the return of Jesus? Do you want to be ready for the end times? However that ends up looking, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, do you want to be ready? No, Jesus. We have in our Bibles what we need to know. It's, it's right here in black and white, sometimes red if you have the right Bible, right? I, I'm, not even, I'm not even saying that it's wrong to speculate, but the clearest message from God comes in words. Listen to him. He has spoken. The prophets have written according to his perfect word. The scriptures testify of who he is so that we will know him and recognize him when he comes. This first week of Advent highlights the importance of anticipating Christ's imminent return. Are we prepared? We must be careful not we must be careful to rely on the word of God and not mere speculations. There's a book that came out when I was a kid. 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. <laughs> Folks, we missed it. Yeah. So right? 
it was it was a widely popular book that made a very compelling argument that Jesus was going to return during Rosh Hashanah in 1988. It compared the world events with some equations that he'd come up with from biblical prophecies. And for many, it was a bulletproof assessment. And a lot of people actually gave everything away that they had in anticipation that after September of 1988, they wouldn't need it anyway. But just like every other prediction before and after that book, it fell flat and Edgar Wisenant went from fame to shame. Here's the thing. If we can't figure out before it happens and we're following Jesus, we're not going to get caught off guard. Jesus isn't going to sit in the clouds pointing his finger at us. Ha ha, you didn't solve the riddle. Ha ha ha. Like, right, go directly to the tribulation. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. No, this isn't a game. We're not going to get caught off guard if we know Jesus. If we're disciples of Jesus, we have the hope of all of his promises. Even if we got some things wrong. We know that Christ's return is imminent. It's exciting. It's good. It's hopeful for us. And we can warn people of it. And even if we can't figure out what God hasn't given us to know directly from his clear word in the first place, we have hope. We, and we prepare by knowing Jesus. Last year I said, and by serving the least of these, that's listening to him. That's, that's, the, that's the, the command. That's what we do to follow Jesus, right? We study what he's given us to know him by, the Bible. So that's why, listen, I watch the news and I watch it plenty. My kids don't like watching it with me. Um, but I watch it enough for them to be annoyed. But I spend about 24 to 30, 36 hours combing through this each week. And the reason isn't because I'm awesome. The reason is, is because it's heavy and I don't want to come up here and get something wrong. Because I love my Lord and I love my IBC family. And we're learning together the scriptures. Because they testify of Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. Listen to him. This is what the father tells us. Verse 36, when a voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. John Calvin said, when it is said that in the end they saw Christ alone, this means that the law and the prophets had only temporary glory, that Christ alone might remain in view. This passage, among other themes, reveals the centrality of Christ and life and death to us. Whether we're talking about the lives we now live on in the flesh or about his incarnation, whether we're talking about suffering uh, now or in the future, whether we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus or of his return, whether we're talking about God's work on our behalf in the past, present, or future, whatever we say or do, Christ is at the center and we will never get any of it right until we recognize that truth. Amen. The disciples with Jesus kept what they had seen and heard to themselves for the time being. Sometimes there's great wisdom in recognizing when it's appropriate to speak and when is the time to listen. And I get that wrong, wrong all the time. 
But here God says to listen, and Peter, James, and John take the command to heart. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the in, exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Speaking of the transfiguration, R.C. Sprawl said, every one of us who is in Christ Jesus will one day see the same glory. When we enter glory, our eyes, and our eyes are so overwhelmed by the brilliance of the light, and we try to find the source of that light, we'll see Jesus, not for a moment, but forever in the blinding glory of God. Kent Hughes said, Jesus is the Shekinah glory. He is the light of life. We do not have him. We are in, if we do not have him, we are in darkness. He is the savior of the world. If we are without him, we are lost. He is our only, keyword. Hope. Amen. First week of Advent is supposed to remind us to anticipate the return of Christ. Are you ready for his return? As Kent Hughes asked, do you have the light of life? Do you know Jesus? We don't prepare by looking up and trying to figure out how far he is from arriving. We ready ourselves by studying the entire counsel of God, by listening to him, so that we will know him and recognize him when he comes. Today, churches around the world are reading Matthew 24, 36 to 45 for this first week of Advent. It says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field. One will be swept away and one left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be swept away and one left. To get, uh, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant who the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? You know, it's it's. Interesting, on Fridays and Saturdays, oftentimes Denise will take some time alone, go down the hill, do some shopping, um, go to Target, uh, go to uh, Winco and Costco and a lot of things that end with O. And, right? And she goes down there and there's a rule that when she gets home, the house needs to be clean. And so the kids are constantly asking me, Hey, where's mom now? She, they want me to look on Life 360 to see where she's at and when they need to stop dragging their feet and actually get to cleaning the house, right? It's not because they like, love mom so much. They love mom, but the reason is because they want it clean when they get there. But here's the reality is, what's the right thing to do? Keep it clean as if she could arrive at any moment because I like it clean too, right? Like, keep the... Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. 
the right thing to do is keep your house clean. Keep it ready. Be ready at any moment. Don't sit there and try to look at Life 360 and figure out how far away he is. He's coming back. We don't know when, nor is there any way to protect when our Lord will return like a thief in the night. But we must be ready because he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And those who will not listen will be swept away. You want to be ready? Listen to Jesus. As we prepare for communion, let us remember that when we partake, we are anticipating that he's going to return in the same glory with which he left us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this, is a, this meal that we're, we will partake in, it's a command. And we're to listen to him. This is only for those who know Jesus. And there's a warning even to those of us who are his disciples. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So take this time of reflection before we partake and examine yourself. Do you need to pull out your phone and make something right with somebody? Do it. That's fine. That's, text messaging can be a wonderful gift from God. Do you need to repent before God? Repent before God. Ultimately, the account we studied this morning reveals the hope that we have of a renewed world and our own transfiguration. And that in the end, there will be no more suffering. And we hold on to that hope as we look upon these elements as we would look upon the body and the blood of our Lord suffered so that we could receive that hope. Let's pray. Our holy God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May we be faithful to lose our lives, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus, and be willing to suffer on his behalf, to know his glory, and to surrender all until we see him face to face in glory. Thank you, Lord, for the cross where you conquered sin and paid the price so that we could know you. Thank you for your great glory in which Jesus ascended to heaven and will return. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your communion that is set before us. Thank you that Jesus has removed our great debt of sin and called us to follow him. And thank you that it is by your grace that his blood was poured out on that wretched and yet beautiful cross. Humble us now, O Lord, as we prepare to receive your communion in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.